On Saturday, January 30th, 2021 at noon Eastern Standard Time, please join SoberCoach.com for a free addiction webinar. You can sign up at SoberCoach.com and clicking in the upper right-hand corner to sign up for this free webinar. The upcoming webinar is a family-focused event. If you have a loved one that is possibly suffering from an addiction, you do not want to miss this one-hour event. The host is a full-time sober coach and a former interventionist with 19 years sober. The focus of the webinar is how to stage an intervention, how to overcome enabling, how to handle an alcoholic addict on a day-to-day basis, when does an alcoholic addict need rehab, tips on places to go to rehab, and what to do if it seems like it's already too late. Join Brian Good, the sober coach, for a free webinar that's Saturday, January 30th, 2021 at noon Eastern Standard Time. Now on with the show. My name is Anthony Capazzoli and this is the Dismantled Life Podcast where we share stories of hope, love, and strength from the darkness of addiction into the sunlight of sobriety. These are stories from people just like us who have lived through the pain and made it. No matter how bad it gets, just know that you can and will recover. It takes work, it takes hard work. Each week, we talk in detail about what it takes to make it, what it takes to beat your addictions. I am a recovering addict from alcohol, cocaine, and nicotine. My addiction started in eighth grade. I am now 50. I had over 40 years of very bad habits to break. I hit rock bottom hard. More than once, I nearly died. I would have left my wife and two young children behind. I've been clean and sober for nearly three years. I completely dismantled my entire life and rebuilt it from the ground up. I believe to make it in recovery, it takes a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual approach. It takes a positive mindset. It takes hard work. It takes a village. Join me weekly to learn from my sober superhero guests on the Dismantled Life podcast. Subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Check me out at dismantled.life. Email me at anthony at dismantle.life anytime. Please be sure to leave a rating and review anywhere you listen to your podcasts and let me know if you want to be on the show. Happy recovery. And you know, you you and I have been around for a little while. So over the years, we do hear other people's story and they sometimes use this phrase, well, when I was in utero and I never, I never had that story. I didn't think I had that story. And then eventually I realized, oh, oh, there was something there. So I'll, I'll just briefly, uh, I was adopted and I knew nothing about my biological family. I didn't know who they were. I didn't know who my mother was. I knew nothing about them. I was raised by a lovely couple, uh, Herb and Virginia, and they took care of me and everything seemed to be moving along in the right direction. And the pre-addiction was right around the time that I was nine years old. Everything should have been going just as well as it could have been going. Sure. Until I was in a 4-H group. And that 4-H group happened to be uh, uh, full of boys, young boys my age, and the 4-H leader who was a pedophile and a predator. And I wouldn't have seen that coming a mile away. And I still, even when I got in sobriety, I did not see that coming. I had no idea that had even happened. I didn't even know there was anything wrong. And I think that was really more or less the first kind of note that was played on my central nervous system, on my ego, on my sense of self. And it changed things. It rewired. It had that moment of disaster that seemed like it was paradise. Everything was going wrong, and yet I was told everything was going right. This is a good thing that we're doing this. This is a positive thing, and it's a secret. It's a wonderful secret that only you and I will share. Now, again, none of that really made sense to me. Didn't understand it at 9, 10, 11. But time goes along, and around around 11 years old, my dad had uh, a heart attack. Uh, My adoptive father, and he had open-heart surgery, and it was awful. I mean, it was terrible to see him laying on the couch, uh, sweating profusely, white as a ghost, just gray, and basically, what I didn't know at that point was dying. You know, he was having a heart attack and it was terrible. And watching him go away in, in the ambulance. And at the same time, things were changing with inside of me. There was a part of me that was still spiraling. I, I could look back on it and say, maybe it was because of the adoption. Maybe I was feeling that sense of loss, that abandonment. Maybe it was just because of the, the abuse that I was endured. And I think that those pieces all played a part. I'm not, as you are, not a psychoanalyst. I'm not a doctor. I don't have all these pieces to play with. 
But I can tell you that one thing did take hold. When I was 11 years old, I met my friend Tony. And Tony and I sat on the railroad tracks one night. He was two years older than I was. And he bought a six-pack of Schlitz for him and a six-pack of Schlitz for me. And I don't know, boy, if you know what Schlitz is like, but it, by the time we got it to the railroad tracks, it was pretty pretty piss warm. We drank it. We drank it anyway. And we drank it with gusto and we drank it happily. And there I was, 11 years old, having my first six-pack of beer. And I will say that that was the turning point. I could say it was the turning point when I was abandoned and adopted. I could say it was the turning point when I was abused. And that does all make sense. All those pieces are really a struggle. But the turning point was that first drink, wasn't it? The turning point wasn't just that first drink, but it was that next morning. I woke up in the morning, just a little kid. And I think, you know, our bodies really recoup a little faster than they would at our age now. No doubt. But I woke up in the morning and as bad as I probably felt, and I don't remember how exactly I felt physically, but I woke up in the morning and I remember thinking just distinctly, now I know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I was so happy that I had found this. I was so happy that I had found maybe the friend that I was drinking with. It seemed like it was a relationship that you know I was happy about. Maybe I thought it was just the lightness I felt, the joy I felt in that moment. But boy, oh boy, I knew. I knew that I couldn't wait till the next Friday. Matter of fact, I didn't wait till the next Friday. I found my parents' liquor, liquor cabinet, sweet vermouth, gin, and vodka, you know, and I would mix them to see what would happen. But the next Friday, Tony and I got a six pack of cores each. We sat on a pile of dirt where they were making houses, they were building houses. And I drank five of those cores. You know, we had moved up in the world here from Schlitz. <laughs> and I, and I, I, uh, I got done with that fifth beer and I, I threw up over everything. I mean, I just completely plastered that dirt pile with vomit. I started drinking that night the way I would drink for many years. I got myself together. I wiped the spittle off my face and I popped the sixth beer. And I remember that distinctly. There was just not an option. There was nothing wrong with the beer. There was something wrong with me. There was something I needed to adjust to. I needed to be able to drink more. I knew, I knew how I felt was perfect. So that was the beginning of my drinking career and the pre-drinking. Uh, there were so many pieces to it that never really made any sense until much later. By the time I was 12, I was in the, uh, the hospital. I had OD'd uh, and it was on pills that my father used because of his heart condition, uh, because he had had surgery and come home and couldn't work anymore. He was taking a lot of pills and some of them were blue and some of them were yellow and some of them were white. And I took a lot of them and ended up having my first OD. By the time I was 13, I was in the back of a police car. First time. Not, not the first, not the last, I should say, but the first. When I was 14, things had really gone haywire. And my poor parents, in many ways, couldn't take care of me. They couldn't really adjust to the changes that were coming at them. My father being ill, my mother having to go back to work. Me so far off the rails that I was unrecognizable. And I recognize that now. I can see that now. I understand what they must have seen but they did the best they could with what they had. And I was born in 62. So we're talking the seventies. I mean, there wasn't even the information that we have here today. There wasn't the internet. There weren't even experts. There weren't books written that needed to be written by that time. And our 12 steps were still a blip on the radar in many ways. No one knew to even suggest that I do that. But what they did do was take me out of my home because I had been, like I said, in the back of cop cars many times at that point, And I was on probation and I got in a fight at the school and I hurt somebody and broke his ribs and they took me out of my home and I went into foster care and that maybe gave my parents a break, but it also devastated them. My poor adoptive family, my adoptive parents who had not been able to have a child now all of a sudden losing the child, the guilt, the remorse and the, the sense of absolute failure that they must have felt. And I know they felt at that point, but for me, I couldn't see that. All I could see was that, you know, I, I was being abandoned again. Right. Why I loop into the original abandonment, because I think maybe if I'd only been adopted, maybe if I'd only been abused, maybe if I'd only taken that first drink and maybe if these other things hadn't happened. But I'm not here to really reverse engineer all this. It happened and it got worse. And through that year, I ran away from one foster home, put in another foster home, ran away from there, put in a group home, put into a detention center. In the middle of all that, they did try to put me in a treatment center, but they told me, oh, do you want to go here? And I said, you mean I can choose? And they said, yeah, it's, it's only voluntary. And I said, oh, no, no, I don't think I have a problem with that. Right. I'll straighten all this out. 
Eventually, I did get back home with my family, but it was actually not very long because I was 16. I quit school as a high school dropout and I ended up on the streets. And when I was uh, uh, at that age, uh, I also was raped by two men. Uh, that was during a time when I was looking to get high and I did get high, but I also got gang raped. And I was still a young man at that point, very young. So that I think also these other things that really played in, factored in, really changed me, adjusted me, uh, rewired me, the way I usually say it. Uh, they started to play havoc at that point. I think I, if I had a falling off point when the bottoms just seemed endless, that was probably when it started. My oldest daughter was born when I was 16. My youngest was born when I was 17. When I was 18, I joined the Navy. By the time I was 19, my wife left me, took the kids. The Navy threw me out, and I ended up on April Fool's Day in jail for seven different felony accounts. And that was back here home, back here in town. And that should have really, all these should have been wake-up calls. And I'm just highlighting. You know I'm just highlighting here. Right. Yeah, none of the, these are almost none of the details. And I don't like war stories, but these are good Good, good. I think a, a trajectory that was yeah. really very common to many of us. Uh, but the next few years were more, more or less the most horrifying. Uh, I ended up on the streets. I prostituted myself. I uh, got very deep into drugs, alcohol, and the whole lifestyle that comes with that. Uh, and by the time I was 23 years old, I was uh, about as sick as I could be. I was a high school dropout and couldn't spell my last name. Um, I would go to work. I had a night job and the night shift at a pool factory. We made pool liners and I would inspect the pool liners. My job was to actually, I had two guys that would inspect them. My job was actually to box them and put them on a banding machine. And I had to take the sheet of paper and copy down the information on the box, but I had to sign my name. I had to put my last name on the box so they knew who inspected it and who approved it. And I couldn't remember my last name. I would take my my, I get to work. I had a solution for that, though, and it certainly wasn't to stop drinking. My solution, <laughs> my solution was to get to work early, drink in the parking lot, get high on the way in, and then take my wallet out as soon as I got there, take my license out, take a little tape, put it on the banding machine. So every time that I would need to write my name, I could copy it down off my driver's license. Now, my name is Barheit. It's a Dutch-German spelling, but it's not that complicated. And I was gone. And that's how saturated I was at that point. And then, wow. New, Year, and then New Year's Eve came. Um, and this was New Year's Eve, uh, 1985, and then New Year's Day, 1986. I made a, a, a New Year's uh, resolution, not because I wanted to quit, not because I thought I had a problem, but because I was not only running out of money, I was borrowing money or getting money from my girlfriend and stealing money from my parents and anyone else that I could steal from because I was, I was a thief. And I really made a decision right then and there. I said, I'm going to quit using drugs and alcohol for one year so I can save enough money, so I can buy enough drugs, so I can deal drugs and never have to buy them again. That was my entrepreneurial idea. Now, I'm a 10th grade dropout who couldn't spell his last name. I can't even, I don't even know what the word entrepreneur is. I'm not sure <laughs> able to spell it. Right. But I, got a, I got a plan, brother. And I woke up the next morning and I didn't feel too well. And I woke up the next morning and I was, I was detoxing and didn't know it. And I got real sick because the drugs and the alcohol came out of me for the first time in quite a few years, many years. And I basically, if, you, if you've had that happen or many of you that are listening to this probably know what the feels like, you're, you go insane. You go, you go insane. You think, you know, you're really, uh, you need to be hospitalized. There's something wrong, but you're not sure what it is. I was sweating so much and throwing up and things were coming out, you know, top and bottom, uh, front and back. And I just also, I was a bloody mess, not to get too descriptive on this call, yeah. but I was a bloody mess uh, um, when I was um, uh, using the bathroom and it was terrible. And I just thought I was, had, had some kind of a virus. I kept saying, I think I'm sick. I think I'm sick. And somehow my girlfriend patched me through that and I made it through those few days. Wow. Yeah, I did. It was almost five days, four days. So you made it without any medical attention at no, all? I didn't even leave the apartment. I was there for the entire New Year's, beginning of the New Year. Um, it was awful. Uh, luckily, my roommate, Tim, wasn't there. He had gone to see me with family and I was hallucinating and I was very sick. But I did make it through with no medical intervention. I did make it through without any, any, uh, um, and that's a dangerous thing to do. That's a yeah. real dangerous thing to do. But I didn't know. 
I mean, I tell I tell this story and anyone with half half an ounce of sense would know I'm feeling bad because of all this. But again, I didn't even stop because of right. all that. I didn't. Now, what yeah. I don't tell too often, but the story is pretty um, specific. Uh, during all the prostitution and the life that I led, uh, much of the, the dysfunction also became very sexual and very um, uh, distorted is the best way. Relationships were extremely distorted. And the relationship I had with the person I was with at that time, uh, I, if, if many of you on this uh, listening to this will know, when you're at the end or even when you're just using a lot of chemicals, you can become impotent. And it's very difficult to have sexual intercourse. It's very difficult to be aroused. It's very difficult to, uh, even though you do more thinking it's going to make it better, it makes it worse. And I had been with this person for quite a while and she knew exactly what to do when I was in that space. And uh, now I'm now I'm about five, six days and uh, my body is starting to clean up from the toxins. She washes me up. She doesn't know what's going on inside of me. She doesn't know what's happening. None of us did. But she decides she wants to cuddle with me. And then I become aroused for the first time in probably years, naturally, so to speak, without the chemicals. And I don't know what's happening to me, but she wants to make love. She wants to be with me. But it's in that old way. It's in that old, distorted, that really degrading way of, of that we can live sometimes, of, of arousing ourselves, of being present. And when she did that, it hit me like a horror show was flashing in my eyes. It was like the Clockwork Orange movie where I was just staring at everything that could be bad in the world, but it was my entire past. Everything hit me, all of it, and I was so ashamed and I was so remorseful. I literally threw, I threw her off of me. I just curled up in a ball and screamed and cried. And the break that I had at that point was uh, tantamount to a, you know, I think a psychotic break, nervous breakdown, whatever you want to call it. And it was at least a hundred times worse than what I had just gone through with the physical detox and the emotional detox. Um, I didn't think I was going to survive that because when the curtain lifted a bit and I could see the life um, and I hadn't seen it when we, denial is a strong thing, but the, the chemicals also are extraordinarily powerful at keeping us, I guess, just off center enough where we can't see what's in front of us, but we, you know, we just see to the side. It's almost like we're looking at the guardrail instead of looking at the road. And it's destructive and painful when we get that curtain comes up and we can actually see the road ahead of us. And we say, oh my gosh, I have to die. I mean, my only thought then was not only do I need to kill myself, but I have no reason to live. I don't belong here. I have no right to be here. Uh, and I mean that seriously, this was just a sense of absolute worthlessness and below zero. So that's where it started. And that's how I got there. And there was a, so there's a, probably a pre-story to the first drink, but there's a pre-story right up to the point when the actual, say, white light experience happened. Because I was curled up in a ball for probably three days and all, I couldn't eat, I couldn't drink. And I was physically fine. I mean, the drugs and alcohol were, had gone out of me enough but I was worse off than I was even during the detox. And all I could say over and over was mumbling, uh, maybe I need help. Maybe I need help. Maybe I need help over and over. I think my girlfriend, she was sitting on the side of the room. I think she just either got sick of hearing me say that or actually had a maybe a little bit of a divine intervention and said to me, maybe you do. And I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Everything inside of me stopped. The tears stopped. The shaking stopped. I still didn't feel good. I didn't feel right, but I knew something had changed. Maybe I do. Maybe I yeah. do. The word maybe was everything. And I reached out for help to a woman who had been a therapist of mine when I was in uh, the group home I told you about. It was called The Weight House. She was my therapist, Jane McCarthy. She was wonderful to me. I used to call her every time I ended up in jail, before my lawyer, before my parents, before anybody else. And she would say, why are you calling me? And I said, I don't know. But I called her the next day and she said, yes, Kevin, because everyone was sick of me at this point. No one wanted anything to do with me. And I, I told her, I said, um, you know, can I come see you? And she said, why, Kevin? Are, are, are you in jail? I said, no, 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 I'm not. I'm OK. I, I just and she said, are, are you are you drunk? And I said, no, I said, I, I'm fine. I, I quit that. I quit that about a week ago. <laughs> I'm OK. Yeah, I said, these, these are the best words I can remember that I said to her. I said, 
I think I have a psychological problem. I need you to help me put my personality back in order. Something like that. I was just blurting it out. So she saw me and I sat with Jane and Jane said to me, as she watched me just hyperventilating, sweating, just out of my mind, scared out of my wits to be in her house. And she said, Kevin, look at yourself. Now, what I didn't tell you was that before I quit everything else on January 1, I quit cigarettes because I thought that was the problem. I was spending too much money on cigarettes right, right around Thanksgiving. And I said to her, no, no, no. This is what happens when you, you quit smoking. You, you need more oxygen. So I'm just breathe. And she said, Kevin, Kevin, you, you, this isn't what happens when you quit smoking. And I said, it's not? She said, no. And I said, then what is it? And she said, Kevin, I don't know but you just might be an alcoholic and an addict. Remember, maybe, now might. She didn't tell me I was. Everybody told me I was all the time. The Navy told me I was, my social worker, the cops, my parents, priests, you name it. Everybody told me I was. Couldn't hear it. She told me maybe, might be. And I said, well, if I, and I looked at her and I remember saying, well, if I am, what do I do? And she says, well, you could go to, you can go to AA meetings. You can go to NA meetings. And I said, well, how do I find those? She goes, I don't know, Kevin, look it up in the phone book. She wasn't right. going to hold my hand, bro. She wasn't going yeah. to hold my hand. So I did. I looked it up in the phone book the next day and Narcotics Anonymous was not in the phone book, but Alcoholics Anonymous in 1986 was. And I called them and asked them where an NA meeting was. And they laughed at me. <laughs> and yeah. it's understandable. You know, I was calling a phone in the Schenectady clubhouse that had like you would put a dime in it to make a call. Right. It was one of right. the old yellow phones. <laughs> sure. You can you can imagine the codger who answered it. I love him with all my heart. <laughs> you know, we don't we don't do NA or we do A. And it was great. Right. It was this great. is AA. I love it. I love yeah. it. It's perfect. But the next day I did realize that there was a treatment center called Hope House in Albany, New York. And I called them last hope, literally my last hope, because I realized if they didn't, they couldn't help me. I was done. And I called them and I asked them if they knew where our meeting was. And they, they said, N.A.? And I said, yeah. And I, I thought, you know, they were going to say, we don't know anything about that. And they said, yeah, I got a list right here. There was three meetings in the whole Tri-City area, the whole upstate area. Holy cow, that's it? Yeah. There was one in, the in, Tri-State one, area? One in Troy, one in Albany, one in Schenectady. And the one in Albany was St. John's Project Lift. It was the only one. It met at um, uh, 7th, uh, 7.30 on Fridays. So mm-hmm. I left. I left work that Friday. And uh, I, of course, did like what any good addict was. I, I thought the meeting started at 7, so I got there at 7.15. But, of course, I'm there 15 minutes early, so there's nobody there but two guys setting up chairs, making coffee, and me sitting in a chair in the middle of the room with all the lights on me sweating. Right. And I'm like, I'm going to go. I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. And then people start milling in, and my heart's out of my chest. And some, I was ready to bolt, just gone. And all of a sudden I felt a hand on my shoulder and I almost jumped. I jumped. She just, she jumped back, you know, cause I was, Whoa, you know, she yeah. put her hand on my shoulder. And I said, she said, hi, how are you? <laughs> and I looked at her and what did I say? I said, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Right. And she said, okay. Okay. She said, I'm Janet. Now remember Jane had been the one I called. So I said, Jane, Jane. I mean, I was, I was still really, really sick. She said, no, Janet, Janet kept me in my seat. I don't know anything else about that first meeting, but when I left and I went home that day, I knew I'd be okay. I didn't know how, I didn't know why. My girlfriend asked me, how was it? And I remember what I said to her. I said, if I could have 5% of what I saw in those people tonight, I'll be okay the rest of my life, rest of my life. So I went to a meeting the next week. I went to a meeting the next week and, um, I remember the topic was sponsorship. The only reason I know that is because when I didn't hear anything else, I walked out of the meeting and thank goodness Janet was on the steps. And I said, Janet, what's a sponsor? And she said, well, it's a person you you see in the meetings that you identify with and you ask them to help you. And Janet's standing right there in front of me. And there's this guy named Al standing next to me, you know, about an arm's length away. And I turned, I looked at him and I said, will you be my sponsor? <laughs> And the poor guy looked at me, he looked at her, he looked at me, he looked at her, and he just was dumbfounded. He said, what do I do? And Janet said, you do it. Now, this guy had, he had 90 days. And the only reason I asked him was because he talked about Jack Daniels and smoking dope in the meeting. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I identify with him. Right. He took, took me out that night to Howard Johnson's. We had the worst coffee in the world. <laughs> but every Friday, he met me at that meeting. 
And every Friday, we talked about the first step and the second step and the third step. Now, he's not still my sponsor. He died. He died of this disease, and that's sad. But about uh, about about a, right around the time I was coming up on a year a year clean, I, I did find somebody to sponsor me. Still my sponsor today, uh, and I have not had a a drink since. I have not had a drug since. But I will tell you, my friend, as you well know, it has not been a straight line. That's right. There have been lots of things that have stood in my way, seemingly, and again with the uh, support systems that I've built and that have been offered to me, I've uh, been able to make it through some really treacherous, treacherous times. The first thing that I made it through, and this is why I alluded to it or spoke of it earlier, is the first thing that hit me was the uh, understanding, and I probably had a year and a half, you know, uh, cleaned up, uh, was that I had been molested. I had been raped. I never knew that. I had to have someone in a therapy asking me the questions to kind of pull it out of me. And I had to actually finally say to them one day, can I ask you something? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, when I was nine years old and I was in 4-H and this guy did this, 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 what, what is that? I literally said these words. And she said, Kevin, you were molested. And I said, oh, oh, oh okay. And I said, can I ask you something else? You know, when I was, when I was 15 or 16 around there, these two guys, they did X, Y, and Z. I said, what, what, what was that? Literally saying these words innocently. She said, Kevin, you were gang raped. I said, oh, okay. Now, I don't say that I was okay, but I do believe in a higher power in my life. And it's a really strong understanding I have. But even back then, when I really didn't have any understanding, I can tell you at that moment, it was going to be okay. And I didn't know why. I didn't understand that I had been molested. I didn't see that clearly until it was time for me to see that clearly, until I was, quote unquote, capable of spending the time with a therapist, spending time crying with my sponsor, spending time beating up a pillow and screaming or talking to people after the meetings till three o'clock in the morning and just saying, what the hell happened to me? Yeah. It was a disaster. Does that, uh, does that moment, and I'm going to call it an epiphany, because I don't know what else to call it. So forgive me if that's not the right word to use, but, but coming that exposure, I to exercise that thought to have it come out so that you're not aware of it is, is that cleansing or is that incredibly scary? Is it both? Because I think that that moment, uh, which is a, a couple of very, very big moments, did, did that help you cope and be able to continue the path? I mean, what, what I'm, I don't even know what to ask and forgive me. Um, you're doing you're doing great at asking because I don't know how to answer it directly and it's a, it's it's as hard to un, to answer as it is to ask. I think it's probably different for everyone. I think that if I were to give an analogy or some kind of a way of thinking about it, it's like watching a movie. You've probably watched a million a movie that really helps me understand the world around me that I might have watched a million times. Mine would be Shawshank Redemption, right? I watched it a million times and then one day you watch it and you go, "Oh, that's what that movie's about." Yeah. That's- it's about hope. It's about, yes, the word is redemption, Shawshank redemption. I thought the whole word, the whole movie was about redemption. And then I get it. Oh, wait, wait, wait. It's about hope. Remember that little conversation in the movie? Oh, but then you see all the little pieces of the movie line up differently than you ever saw it before. And I've watched that movie a hundred times. It could be a Hallmark movie. It could be a commercial. It could yeah. be something. What I'm saying is it's a very, for me, a very visceral piece of my uh, my memory that comes to light in a way that is now clearer. And I didn't make it any clearer. It's now understandable in a new way, not perfectly understandable, not fully understandable at all, maybe just a hair more in a way that only my higher power could really ha- cause that epiphany, that white light experience. The same thing like when I hear the word maybe, when I hear the word might, when I hear maybe and might now, does it have a different meaning for me than it ever would have? When I think of something like hope, when I understand things like being able to reach out to help and ask a seemingly, almost, I would say, seemingly moronic question like, gee, this happened. What is that? You were molested. You were raped. It seems like I was, you know, just came out of the womb and didn't know anything. But what does that offer me more than anything else? That epiphany isn't just my gift. It's now the gift I can give others, right? I can't search for their epiphany. I can't show them anything. But when they get that, 
when like you and I talking right now, and when somebody, you know, they get it right in that moment, I can be there and go, uh-huh. Yeah, that's what it is. And it's a sense of yeah. understanding and it's not com- camaraderie. It's not just, right. a, it, it's, it is a fellowship. It is something that includes me, you, and what's happening right now. Uh, you know, I'm looking, I'm looking at you on the screen. There's two of us. I know there's three of us. I mean, whatever, four of us, you know, there, there's more than me and you in this room right now. There's an important essence to the communications that we have when we heal that um, happen almost not in spite of us. That's kind of a negative way to put it sometimes, but um, yeah. they happen, they happen with us, with our, with our participation, not until we're ready, but also not until, you know, our higher power is, is uh, guiding us there. I hope that helps. It's hard. No, it's tremendously helpful. So for me, one of the things that really centered home for me, everything you said has been enlightening to me uh, in, in just a, so thank you for sharing that. But the, the, the one piece that when you say maybe, and when people don't put a fine point out, like you are this or you are that, for me, um, it's not exactly that. I don't like when people say you've made it or you look good or you've done this. I don't like the finality of that. I, I like being in the process of improvement and I don't like the recognition of accomplishment. It, that's, it sounds like I'm insane and I know that, but what I mean is I... I feel then like I'll put I'll put the weight down and I, I know that I can't put it down. I have to continue working hard at it. And I'm afraid that if I hear good feedback or positive feedback, not abuse, I don't need to be abusive or anything. I just prefer not to hear anything be, because I'm afraid that if I hear it, I'll mentally align myself with accomplishment and take it easy tomorrow. I and I'm afraid of that. And that can happen in personal relationships, wife, children, right? Right. Yeah. Or mothers, fathers, they're con- depending on your relationship, of course. It can happen at work. Uh, and I'll use this just as one simple example, uh, profound for me, but simple. Uh, my own, my own uh, supervisor, the person I work with and for, uh, has, has really had some effect on me. One, one of the things I've learned is just a simple thing, like, you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt. Right. That's something I've watched them practice. I've watched this person practice, say it out loud. Sure. But really, I've, I've learned by watching. But in relation to what you were just saying, we do our reviews right once a year. But she doesn't do a review with me just once a year. She does one periodically to get to that review. So by the time we get to that review, you know, we've already been thinking about it's that inventory thing. Right. But what I don't think even she well, she may know. But what has really affected me is. She doesn't sit down at any of these reviews and tell me what she thinks. She asks me. So instead of saying, you know what? You look great. You must feel great. You must be doing great. You must have everything lined up. You must have made it, Kevin. Wonderful for you. She'll say, how's it going? How do you think think you've been doing? Where are you in that process? And I'll give another example, of course, the easiest one, which is my sponsor, Richard. Hi, Richard. And it's so nice uh, to be able to speak about him and know he'll be listening to this at some point. But the important thing he's done over and over again is be patient with me and ask me and let me come to the place where I understand where I was, where I am and where I want to go. And I think I like what you're saying, which is, you know, I don't want to be where I am. I'm okay with where I am, but I don't want to be complacent. I want to find a sense of comfort, sure, in my progress, uh, but I want to be content, not complacent. Perfectly stated. I enjoy the process and it's taken me a long time to enjoy the process of anything. It took me almost dying to figure out that it's not about, forget about the finish line. It's, you, you have to dismiss the outcome entirely and, and love the process. Then things can fall into its place and happen at the time in place that it needs to happen, whatever that is, uh, as you described, where you can come to terms with things, you can be okay saying no, you can be okay with your failings. Um, and that, that to me has been the beauty of my sobriety and not to turn this about me, but I just to contribute to the conversation in that regard, I have enjoyed challenging myself in ways and holding myself accountable in ways that I've never done in my entire life. I've always hidden behind the alcohol, the drugs, the always me bullshit, you know how it is, right? There's always a lie in a story. And if only this happened, it would have turned out differently kind of crap. Uh, and I, I lived in that and up to my eyes, it was my quagmire. And, and, and I've one thing I, I don't allow myself to do anymore is to point the finger at anybody else but myself. 
Um, I'm responsible for my own actions, decisions, responses. Um, and I'm not perfect. I struggle every day making sure that I don't fall short, I guess, is the way to put it. And I'm okay falling short as long as I'm aware of the failure and continue to move forward and try to get better. And that that has been the beauty of my sobriety, of holding myself accountable in the right way. That has been giving me a light of foot that is impossible to describe to anybody unless they're in the fellowship, as you, as you described. That moment, that everything and nothing moment for me has given me the freedom to be okay with my failures and be okay with who I really am and be in love that about me. And that's why I'm doing the show is to help people get there too. I think it's uh, it's it's remarkable how we can change because my demeanor, my MO, my way of looking at the world was always competing and, and comparing with others. And yeah. I think, you know, when we come in the room, when we get clean and sober, we're looking at a pretty much a disaster of a life or at least a very broken, you know, uh, segment of our life that feels awful. And right. we look many times... <laughs> Uh, back in chagrin and horror, but we look forward looking for inspiration. And I know for me, I look for inspiration in the rooms. I look for inspiration in my sponsor. I look for ins- inspiration with higher power or, or say, you know, an actor that I really admire or Gandhi or, you know, some spiritual, yeah. anything, whatever it is, we look for inspiration. And the interesting thing, what I want to reflect back as I listen to you right now is the difference between looking for inspiration and having aspiration. So I now have aspirations, right? And those I look around me to say, gee, that's worth aspiring to. Like my own son, Tyler, hey Ty, is 20 years old and I aspire to be like him in some ways. And my son, Kentaro, hey buddy, he knows I aspire to be like him. He's incredible. My wife, I aspire to certain things. I look for other people for that aspiration so that I can then point myself in a direction that I, I might be interested in going but I'm inspired by the growth that I've made already. I'm inspired from someone who came from a high school dropout who couldn't spell his last name to someone who can actually say and spell the word entrepreneur and can have a (laughs) one-on-one conversation like this without missing a beat. So I think that's what I'm hearing you saying is that you are inspired from where you were measuring yourself by your own growth to where you are. And that allows you to leap leap off that quantum leap from that inspiration to wherever you're going to go. The aspirations we can find. Sometimes I need to have a real talk with myself about my aspirations because sometimes they're money. Sometimes they're property, they're prestige, they're this. And my aspirations, I like to think, will more and more over time become spiritual aspirations. Sure, they might include money. They might include these things. But what's the nature of that aspiration? To be of service to God and others or is to get more from me? To help, you know, in any way, any small way that I might be able to or to be some kind of a, you know, big guy on the totem pole, so to speak. Right. My, my inspirations come from the spiritual growth that I make. My inspiration comes from seeing that it's possible because you know, you're, you tell me, we've talked about it the other day, we fall on our face so many times. We, oh, get, yeah. we fail, we get tired, you're exhausted today, I'm exhausted today. We could talk this entire podcast, we could just talk about this one day and everything that we feel, all the struggles that we have, But we're inspired because yesterday was different, today was different, and tomorrow will be another day. I stopped saying, you know, no matter how bad today is or good, I stopped saying tomorrow's going to be a better day. What was wrong wrong with today, bro? What was wrong with today? Exactly. (laughs) You know, before, I don't even know if you turned it on at the beginning, but what we were saying right at the beginning before we were just talking, it's like, we're, we're here. We're here. Yeah, we're clean. We're dry. It's perfect. Like it. That's a great day. Like if stop there, and I've had a wonderful day. I I didn't slip up. I didn't go back, and I never. It's funny. Like I I didn't realize I was even doing it, but I I have to really consciously think about this word. And I'm going to say it, and I try to never say it, but relapse because I keep it out of my mental dictionary and daily use because I I am a believer, and I've trained myself in this regard where you. You are what you think. You are what you do. You are what you believe. And I'm afraid that if I have that word relapse in there bouncing around, it's a little too close to the edge for me. And I like to keep it out. Um, I use it, you know, for these kinds of conversations just because sometimes I need to. But um, I do believe that you, you have to pursue your best life. And today's a great day. No matter how it ended up, it was the best day that you were supposed to have. Yeah. 
And, and I like, I have come, as I mentioned before, I've come to love the struggle. I loved, I love the white knuckle ride. Sometimes I like having to fight the fight because I've realized that by fighting and winning makes me that much stronger. And that is the beautiful part. Cause when I started this podcast, um, it, it hit me hard. It really made me flex sobriety muscles and recovery muscles that I thought I had already flexed, but I, I was not even close. And so sadly, this this podcast was focused on helping others share their stories for people to find, stay on, or get back on the path to sobriety. But selfishly, I hate to say this, but this show has done a lot for me to teach me what muscles, to give me the strength to flex my muscles better, I guess is the only way I can say it, for sobriety's sake. So that selfishly, that's the result that I've, I've gained from the show. And that wasn't my intent. I don't but think it's, it's selfish. I think it's the opposite of self-centeredness. It's, it's definitely the selflessness that we find in recovery. I do think as I'm listening to you, I'm really hearing some really strong, strong, um, a strong understanding that we're not just doing, we're not here for us. We're not, we weren't made for just ourselves. And yet you use phrases that I really understand in intimately, and we are going to struggle in our recovery. There may be, we may be think we're doing everything we're supposed to be doing, but there, there just may be no answers in one, in one moment. And I think when you say, you know, fight and win and fight and win, that'll make me stronger. The struggle makes me stronger. Growing makes me grow more towards something. Like I said, a spiritual growth, a, you know, an emotional growth, a mental growth, even a physical growth. I do grow. I grow stronger. There's this essence of when I first came in that I thought the trauma had purpose because it made me stronger. And I gave a lot of credit, like I was almost grateful for the traumas, but they don't make me stronger. They actually broke me down, but the struggle from that trauma, that's yeah. what gave me courage. It gave, see, the strength we're talking about is courage. It's not pride. It's, it's a sense of hum, humility. It's a sense of understanding that humility is actually going to be what's going to be the foundation for the rest of my life, being humble, knowing that I'm going to fail almost every single day, but that's how I'm going to grow. That's how I'm yeah. going to learn. That's how I'm going to change into the man that I don't, or the person, man, woman, that I don't even know that I can be yet. I have no idea what's coming tomorrow. I have no idea, but I know how to struggle. I know how to grow. And I like your grappling with it. The idea of, you know, you boxing for how many hours a day? <laughs> uh, well, eight rounds a day. So at least an hour a day. Good. So eight rounds. I like that idea. Eight rounds. I like that because there's a strategy there. There's a compartmentalization of eight uh, it's my favorite number, by the way, which is the oddest thing I've heard. All I just didn't even know why I had to say that out loud. It is my favorite number. I think it's just because I'm ADD and I do everything and probably OCD. But the point is, there's a good there's a good box there of eight. And if I do four, well, that's okay. There might be some days that for whatever reason the kid's sick or maybe I can't even get in any. But I know the eight is my strategy. I know the eight is the compartmentalized grouping of round of, of rounds that I'm going to do that is going to help me to do the next eight and the next eight and the next eight. I don't have to go from eight to 40 or 80 right. or not. It's not even, it's, that's not what we're doing it for. We're doing it to train these muscles. So what do I do every morning? I get up, I have my oatmeal, I put in my blueberries, I have my flaxseed oil and I have my... <laughs> All the good stuff, yeah. Oh yeah, I gotta put in my. You know, I, I can't even remember. Oh, chia, chia seeds is the newest. Chia, yeah. I, I, you know, and I and I sit down with that and my freshly ground decaf coffee. Now that's all a little ritual. I like the ritual. See, that's that's yeah. part of the eight. But then I sit down while I'm eating my oatmeal and I read from one of my readings. And while I'm, you know, halfway through my oatmeal, I'm on to my second reading, and they're both spiritual readings. And then I'm done with that, and I finish my oatmeal, and I'm sipping my coffee, and I'm saying some some prayers. I'm doing some morning stuff. And I'm done with all that and the coffee's done and the oatmeal's done and the prayers are done. And now maybe I'm sitting in the backyard like I did this morning and I'm sitting by the pond and I set my phone app for 15 minutes and I close my eyes and I go into my meditation. There's my eight rounds. I come out of that eight rounds. I come out of that eight rounds. It didn't make me into a superhero. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to be able, I'm not Ali, right? I'm not, I'm not fighting Tyson at this point. And I have no idea. I'm, I'm way out of my league with even discussing. No, you're doing great. No, that's But perfect. you get it. I'm not, I'm not going to be, you know, the, the mystic now because I spent that morning doing that, but that's going to be my growth for the day. And boy, oh boy, 
I may not notice it that day. I may notice it. It may feel wonderful, but I'll notice it a year from now. And you will too. You may not be the most supreme boxer on earth, but you would have made progress and you will know it and you will sense it. And it will give you courage to make other, other rituals, other boxes, other choices. And that's, if you don't mind, I'm going to really just hone in on that for one more minute. Please. When I was about 12 years clean and sober and doing my life, things had gotten better. I had gotten, I was a high school dropout who got his, you know, his bachelor's degree. It took me five and a half years to get a four year degree, but I got it. I was married again. I had two kids. I was living in New York City. I had a corner office in Manhattan at the largest music company in the world. And I was making six figures, right? From where I was to that. And I got too busy. I got too busy to do the things that I had been doing that had got me to that place. Whatever those are, whatever those mean, those were my eight rounds and I wasn't even doing four of them. And then I got too busy to even do three. I got too busy to do two rounds. I got too busy to do one round. And then you know what? By the time I went from 12 years to 13 to 14 to 15 years, I didn't even know where the gym was anymore. I didn't know where I put my gloves. I had no idea. And not only that, and this is the big one, not only wasn't I putting the gloves on or showing up at the gym, I didn't even want to call the guys that went to the gym. I didn't even want to hang out with them because I didn't know what to talk to them about anymore. I I disconnected from everything that was working. And everything in my life was fantastic. I had you know, beautiful house or apartment in Park Slope, Brooklyn, you know, uh, right near the park. And it was gorgeous. And I remember sitting in that kitchen window at three in the morning with two beautiful kids sleeping in the other room and my wife asleep in it. And I had a straight razor in my hand. I was pressing it against my arm and saying, just do it, man. Just do it. Just do it. Get, you got to go. So I, I really want to hone in on that because that's the eight rounds. That's, there was, there were things that I was doing. I was going to meetings. I had a sponsor. I worked the steps. I did service. I cared about other people and I had a higher power in my life. Those were the five pillars of my entire, you know, recovery, whatever it was. And I was doing all these things and then I got too busy for them and I didn't show up and everything else became important and they didn't. And then I hit bottom. You know, you can hit a bottom without taking a drink. It's called the dry drunk. And I was a mess. I was a disaster. I was horrifying. I was depressed and didn't know it. Got fired from that that corner office job. And that was in July 2nd of 2001. Why do I know that? Because it's my son's birthday. I got fired on my son's birthday. And I I got notified of that a week before, which was my birthday. I was told on my birthday, my last day of work would be my son's birthday. And then I took the summer... And I got back to those pillars of my life. I slowly would, you know, I hit a terrible bottom, but I started doing that and everything was moving along in the right direction. I was really connecting again and feeling better. And my wife was happy and I was happy. And I said, you know what? It's September. I'm going to go look for a job next week. I've got the resume together. And it was September of 2001 in New York City. And there I was on a Tuesday morning and my whole life went to shit. Everything exploded, literally. And I can tell you to this day, man, if I hadn't had that summer of being back to those eight rounds, of being back to the gym, of being back to work in those things, I don't know. I, I can't tell you what would have happened, but I wouldn't have been equipped to deal with it, to be there for my family, to find a new job. And it wasn't in the field that I worked in. I went from a corner office to doing sales for safety clean, which is hazardous and non-hazardous waste removal, but I did it with humility and gratitude. And then I will tell you today, that was 2001. <laughs> we're, we're 2020, bro. And it's a mess out here. This, yeah. this world seems so upside down. And I'm like, nope, I'm going to do my eight rounds. I'm going to do my five pillars. I'm going to keep my things in order because I know no matter when this virus ends or starts up a new one, I, no matter what happens left or right, without this, Without those eight rounds, I'm going nowhere. I'm not going to be ready for whatever comes, even the good stuff. You know what I'm saying? I do. Couldn't agree with you more. I think the process and the routine in the eight rounds, metaphorically speaking, is everything. You have to be grounded in your own way. Everyone listening, I mean, whatever that grounding is, stick to the grounding, stick to the process. Like you, I, I have my morning routine. I take an afternoon 
afternoon, but I'll take a walk or a bike ride. And then in the evening, I'll do the same. I'll take a walk or a bike ride, play basketball or tennis. And I do it because I like, it grounds me and gives me the strength and the humility to continue on and, and hopefully do good things for those that I love around me and myself. I have learned so much uh, from our session today. I just have one more question, if you don't mind. What is life like today? I know that things are tough with you being 2020 with everything going on with COVID, but how are how are things today? I wouldn't know where to end. That We would have to do an entire other session to really <laughs> blow the top off hard. Hard. Much of it is hard. I've gone through, I've seen some folks very close to me go through some illness. Uh, my mother's 91, that adoptive mother I told you about, lives right upstairs, told her to keep the TV down so we don't have to keep <laughs> in her apartment here. And we, we care for her. She's 91, but she went through a terrible you know, double pneumonia. We thought it was COVID. It was awful. I lost a friend to COVID this year in Queens, New York. Yeah, it was a really tragedy. Uh, work is, you know, very stressful for many of us. And I'm thank God that I do have a, a job. I can work safely from home. My wife, you know, has has a job that we're, we're st- still in flux. We're figuring things out. But I think that all that thing is the, log- all those are, they're, they're important. Um, but they're, lo- they're, lo- they're the logistics of my life. They are the tinsel on the tree is how I've learned to say it. The tree itself is I'm grounded every day in not just the spiritual practice, but the confidence in that that practice, this foundation is firm and that it will continue to be there for me uh, no matter what happens. Uh, I do have some special things in my life. I'm, uh, you know, I was adopted and I never knew my biological family. Um, I'm not going to tell the whole story here. It would be a very long one, but I did search for my biological mother uh, back in 2005 and I completed that search in 07. Um, But that's a whole big story. Uh, But recently I started a search for my biological father and did the DNA testing on ancestry. And I believe that I've identified who he is and haven't been able to make contact yet. So there's a lot of these unbelievable, magical things in my life. Um, All the story that I just told you, much of it I've written. I'm publishing the memoir. It's called Dear Stephen Michael's Mother. You're talking to Kevin Barheit, but my name was Stephen Michael. My mother, uh, my my biological mother named me that. And I found a beautiful letter that was said, Dear Stephen Michael's Mother. It's a letter that my my biological mother wrote to whoever would adopt me, to to my mother who's sitting upstairs right now. So all these things are happening. The book will come out in November or December, and there'll be a whole bunch of things that will happen. But again, all those things, they're the tinsel on the tree too. They're the things, I'm not going to say they're the benefits of sobriety. Uh, They're just literally, if they didn't happen, if none of this happened, if none of these special things in my life happened, I still wouldn't have any regrets. Disappointment I can deal with. Disappointment would be you and I, you know, did this whole thing and the recording didn't work and the the audio stunk. That I can deal with. And all of these things could be disappointing. But I can't deal with regrets anymore. And what I will say to you today is, what's it like for me? I ain't got no regrets. I don't have any regrets today. Every day that I wake up, I have this spiritual essence, this spiritual platform, these principles, these eight rounds in my life. And so far, so good. Since that time in 2001, I've had a a lot of ups and downs. I've gone through some terrible times when my dad died, depression and things like that. But I kept doing the eight rounds and I made it through and I don't have any regrets. That's the, that's the key.